Today, we are talking to Derek Johnson. He is the CTO and co-founder of Lawlytics, a legal software company. They are absolutely knocking it out of the park. And let me break this down for you. Derek and his co-founder self-funded a multi-million dollar company, and their initial product assumption was wrong. But they listened to the market, they adjusted, and now they are thriving. So grab a beer, relax, and get ready. This episode is overflowing with value right here, right now on the Modern CTO Podcast. Here we go. This is the Modern CTO Podcast. Holy crap, time goes by fast. Yes, it does. Well, if it's been seven years, then I've known you for like a decade now. We've known each other for a while. In fact, I was thinking about how, yeah, how we started and, and where that was. And it's a, it's an interesting tale. Yeah. <laughs> One best left unsaid. Sure. I think so. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so um, the things I really know about you are that you went from developer to CTO and that you're absolutely killing it. You're, it's a, you're a CTO of a multi-million dollar company, which is fantastic. You did all that growth without a significant amount of like venture funding, right? right. right? It's primarily founder funded right. with their own capital, which is unbelievable because, you know, nowadays everyone's taking tons of funding just to get the idea out where you guys, you know, used your own money and put up your own risk and you made it work. And now you've got how many people? We have uh, just under 500 law firms. Oh, that's unbelievable, yeah. man! Yeah, and I should yeah. I should clarify, it wasn't exactly my money. Uh, it was, you know, it was <laughs> the money of uh, my co-founder Dan. Yeah, who's a fantastic guy. I know him. He's as well. a lovely guy. Yeah, and this was this was sort of his idea. And had it not been for actually, had it not been for you introducing me to Dan, uh, we would not be having this conversation today. I love it though. You guys are great, and you were like a perfect in my mind. I was like, all right, Derek and Dan, they would do great things, put them together and uh, high five, wish the best of yeah. luck. And it's just turned out awesome. Has, yeah. Unbelievable. So your background developer, CTO. Now I have been reaching out. I have over 1500 pre-registrations for the book in this podcast, like crazy from just developers to CTOs of mid-level startups, with 10, 15 people, all the way up to CTOs, fortune 500 companies with 600 plus employees. Right? right. So that's kind of like the audience of the range of these 1500 plus uh, pre-registrations for the book and the podcast. So from that, I have gotten an enormous amount of feedback because I've reached out to every single one of them <laughs> by email. Uh -huh. It's been a monstrous task, right? I'm doing, you know, 50 to 100 emails a day. Every single person, I look them up, see what they're doing write them a personalized message saying, Hey, this is pretty great what you're doing. And, uh, here's the CTO podcast that we're doing. And if you have any experiences, write back. So people have been writing back to me and the stuff that they're saying is unbelievable because your experience from developer to CTO, everyone's writing back to me saying, I don't know. One of the, the most common message I get is Joel. I don't know if my experience would be valid. Uh, valuable to you in the podcast, I have an atypical experience, right? A non-standard experience where I went from being a developer to being a CTO. <laughs> mm. I'm like, it blew my mind. They think that that's, that's become more common than not. So what, did, what, do they think, what do they think the process should be? I don't know. You go to the, the 1950s, you go to college and <laughs> 
and <laughs> people, you know, some mean professor teaches you and you go out into the world and use the branded uh, education you got right. and try to get a job as a C-level executive in technology. Well, I suppose it, it, in a way, it depends on the company because it's, it's really easy to be a CTO for a three-person company um, because you're really the only one who knows how to develop anything and, and uh, everyone else is there just uh, for different purposes. But, you know, naturally being a CTO for a company that's 500 people, it's probably a completely different experience and likely a very different path to getting there. Right, which begs the question, like, is the developer at the three-person company who's acting as the CTO, are they the best fit to become the CTO when the company hits 20, 30, 50 people? Uh, yeah, almost certainly not. Unless the unless the progression is is very slow and they've been riding it out the entire time. So so if they're responsible themselves for the growth, then absolutely. But if it's because they have a, just a, a really great marketing company, I'm sorry, marketing department or because they have a great sales department uh, or both, then perhaps not. It it may get out of hand. You know, the company may grow so quickly uh, and they're just not fit for managing such a large company that's that's pretty demanding of the technological needs. Dude, that's that's uh, way awesome. <laughs> that's a completely unique perspective, and that's exactly why we're doing the podcast because I didn't think of that at all. So what you're saying is that based on the experience that they have during the growth, yeah, that's going to position them or to determine if the they are able to assume that role. Right. I mean, I think it's I think you it's presumed that uh, that they contributed enough to deserve that position. You know, in a way it's it's uh, because of them that they're in that position because the product is so great or the technology is so great that people are just like, you know, banging down the door to get it. Right. So so are you involved like in the business direction decisions from like the beginning as the CTO? When you're a co-founder, you kind of are naturally, um, and and that's how we started. We started with two people, two co-founders, and and not another human being. Um, so so yes, in that case, yes. But if you are brought on as a CTO to a company that's already sort of established itself, um, you may not. You may only focus on the technology. So I think it's different when you're a CTO versus being a CTO and co-founder. I agree. Yeah, because if you're there and you're present during those critical business decision, decisions mm -hmm. and you're contributing to them, that's way different than just being the developer and being off in your you know, dark hole, making the application and only worrying about that and completely shutting out the outside world. Yeah, yeah. I, I know very few sort of products that would be able to sell themselves on the technology alone. You know, there's so many, and I wish I had known this, you know, when we started, there are so many other components to it that are so much more difficult than the technology such as marketing and sales and support, um, all the customer facing stuff. You know, we wanted to be a SaaS product at the beginning. And naively, we thought that SaaS product equals customers pay and they never talk to you. Well, that couldn't be further from the truth. Um, it, just because you have a product that is online only, you know, um, doesn't mean you don't have to have a superb uh, support staff on top of it to help people out. Yeah. And, you know, that's one of my biggest uh, pet peeves when I get do quotes for people for apps. So they, they feel like because it's an app or because it's a technology SaaS product that you bypass the other 
like the fact that it's a business. Right. Like it's somehow right. an easier business to have a SaaS product versus, uh, you know, a tire repair shop or whatever. Exactly. And the only time that I would believe there's truth to that is what I call utility apps. Mm -hmm. And that would be like your file conversion style apps, like, you know, the small little thing, nothing that's going to be generating significant revenue. Well, that's the thing is those aren't really businesses. Right. So, but what I think happens in the market is that they apply that utility idea to things that actually need full business support. Sure. Yeah. I, I just see that happening. Now, what do you think? Here's a good one. I have been looking recruiters just like bombard mm. my LinkedIn. It's sure. It's an epidemic, right? <laughs> and they are always sending me job posts of, you know, anybody, whatever, like, Hey dude, I'm not doing your job for you. Right. You know, you find your people, you're not getting into my friends and bothering them as well. Right. So I get, I see a lot of CTO job postings and what I'm noticing is that a large number of them want the CTO to be programming full time at an existing company where their size is 20 people. Now, what do you think about that? Well, I think it's kind of silly. Um, it, it, how many developers? Uh, let's just say that the company is large enough to support uh, 20 employees as a business staff, right? So let's so say just what, talk about six of them are, are engineers? Yeah, let's say four to six of them are engineers. Yeah. I, full time. I, I just, I, you know, as a CTO, I do still write code um, because I enjoy doing it. And, and I don't think I'll ever give that up. But at the same time, it cannot be my my full time job. It just can't. You know, the the um, there are so many other aspects to being a CTO, which is quality control, um, onboarding new developers, making sure the platform is something that developers actually want to work on. And you can't do any of that if you're writing code. So writing code full time as a CTO seems a bit odd, unless it's a, a startup that has existed, you know, for a year or so. But uh, beyond that, it, it it would be I would be concerned. Yeah, and that's that was what that's what where my mind went is so two things are happening. The, the first one is that they may have twenty people and be that size, but if they want their CTO to program full time, they don't understand what what they need. Right. Because if you put a job posting for a CTO that programs full time, you need another developer. Right. Right. Well, that should be their and, first job as CTO would be to build the right. development team. Exactly. That uh, fact or that they have a large staff. And because to be honest, I didn't know how many developers I just guessed, let's say four to six. But they may another thing that they may have is they may have a large infrastructure, a large company staff, but they have like maybe one or two developers or the CTO previously was like a single developer with an assistant. Right. 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 And then, and that's a red flag to me because if you have a company large enough to support 20 employees and you have that sort of cash flow and you are not reinvesting into your product at the rate of four to six engineers, you're a product company, you're a technology company and that should be, you know, at least 30% of your budget right. at like the minimum, right? Yeah, oh, I, I couldn't agree with you more. In fact, um, even thinking about a 20-person company that's a SaaS product and they only have one engineer, I mean, that's that's ludicrous. That's that's fictional, I hope. Um, yeah, and and, and maybe, it's maybe it's because engineers, you know, this is this is definitely something that we've struggled with for, for many, many years. And 
and and maybe it's because engineers are more expensive rather than uh, hiring a support staff member, for example. So let's say you have a problem or you have a, a, um, a task that needs to be done uh, for every new customer that's onboarded. You can either have, a, you can hire a support person, you know, a human being to do that task manually over and over and over, which is obviously not very scalable. Um, or you can, you can hire the engineer who builds an automated way to solve that problem. And uh, it's just, I, I think it's easier, it's cheaper to hire a support staff or a temp, you know, or something like that, than to uh, recruit a new engineer. That's Maybe that's the bottom line. So I want to give the listener some context, because you're giving out some awesome, you're like dropping knowledge bombs, right? You're sharing your experience. And we understand that you're legal software and you're CTO and you went from developer to CTO, but how many employees do you, you have about 20 employees at your company? Yeah, right? I think we have just under 20, like 19. You know. Okay. With 500, around 500 clients. Now, what is your composition? Like you were there from the beginning. Kind of tell me about like when you brought on people and then where you're at right now, as far as your whole company, your developers, your support staff. Can you kind of give me a little story about how you, how the growth? Sure. Are? Yeah. Yeah. I'll, I'll try and keep it short. Um, so uh, the, pr- the product that we have, the easiest way to describe it to technical people, which I assume will be listening to this, is it's a content management system tailored for attorneys. So unless you're a law firm, you have no interest in our content management system. If you are an attorney, you probably should be really interested in it. Um, but so we started out with the idea that we could build a product that would eradicate any need for a web designer, you know, some, a highly trained person. Uh, who builds websites for traditionally from a, a web agency? So we wanted to we wanted to eliminate that need, and we thought we could build a, a CMS that would do that. Um, we were wrong. We we were absolutely dead wrong. Uh, it turns out that you need either a spectacular product, something that dozens and dozens of engineers and product designers are working on to solve the problem of web design. Um, or you just have to be a traditional web agency. And, and currently, we're kind of like in between. So uh, now we have two designers. We have two developers. So it's still a pretty lean team. Um, we have three support people. They're the ones that are answering support tickets and, and answering the phone when, when someone has a question. Then we have, and this is, this is the interesting thing, um, as, as you, you're probably aware, a, con- a website without content isn't very good. And a lot of attorneys don't really have time. Some of them do, and that's great. But a lot of them don't have time to write their own content. So after years and years and years of them asking, you know, do you write content? Do you write content? And telling them, no, we're just the product. We're just the product. Uh, eventually, we caved and, and built a, a content division that services customers who frankly don't have the time or the ability, you know, to, to write really compelling content that's specific to their law firm. So that's where about six of the uh, staff members are. So we have six people in content. We've got three people in support, two designers, two developers, a CTO and a CEO. Excellent. So how long after you started, did you bring on your first so it started with you and Dan, and when did you bring in your first person and why? 
we immediately started recruiting designers because we knew that the that the customer facing the uh, the websites that that our CMS is producing, you know, they needed to look good. And I I was obviously busy busy building the product. I couldn't build the the sites that the product generated, unfortunately. So I think we recruited right away for designers. Um, and we had two designers. You know, they were they were pretty new. They didn't they didn't really innovate for us. We weren't really looking to them to innovate. Uh, when we first hired our first innovator, I would say it was a good two years into the business. And and I should clarify that the 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 product didn't actually go into production until maybe a year and a half after that. So six months after production, that's when we started recruiting for um, you know innovative people. Interesting. So how long from the day you wrote your first line of code till you had your first user? Uh, like test user person actually deploying it into production. Right. Yeah. Um, we we released into beta about a year and a half after we started development and started the business. Um, fortunately, my my co-founder, who was an attorney for many many years, has many many contacts, other attorneys that are friends with him, and and he had been mentioning that you know we're working on this product and it'd be great for you. And uh, there were just attorneys that were chomping at the bit to participate in the beta. So I think we had 10 to 20 people in the beta. And when I say beta, I, I, it, not the traditional beta, because this this actually was their website, you know, which as an attorney, frankly, as any business, I, I think today, <laughs> your website's pretty critical. And these people were just willing to um, sort of try it out. And, and it worked out great for them. Excellent. And then so... I, I'm a big preacher, right, and proponent of saying, release your beta as quickly as you can and get people on it uh, in the most basic form and then let those people tell you what to do, right? And you guys have had success with a long initial build time. And so I'm curious as to, was that intentional or how did that come about? <laughs> intentional, <laughs> intentional in the sense that we were cheapskates. You know, we were we were trying to boot. We bootstrapped the whole thing. We were trying to do it uh, with a with a you know very low budget. You know, we couldn't we didn't raise any money. We couldn't go out there and, and pay engineers a uh, hundred forty thousand dollars salary. So so I guess it was intentional in the sense that we were trying to do it on a shoestring budget. I hope that's a real expression. That's a thing. Okay, good, good. Yeah. I've got two of them on my body right now. No, good. Yeah. I'm actually yeah. not wearing any shoes. Oh, excellent. Yeah, <laughs> it would only be awkward if they weren't below my ankles. So. Right, right. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> what is that? I don't, I don't know, know, but we're going to edit it out. I'll tell you that much. Definitely editing that out. <laughs> uh, it's, like a, it's like a dad joke, but like really, <laughs> yeah. really bad. You do have a mustache right now. I, I imagine you have a mustache. <laughs> I do. I, the listeners, or a goatee? Goatee? It is, it is imperative for the listeners to understand mm -hmm. that I have no facial hair. Okay, good. <laughs> and no, and his shirt is not tucked in. He swears. <laughs> I do have a pocket protector. Oh, jeez. Uh, no, but man, I find myself making more dad jokes now that I have a little bit right. of a girl. Right. Well, you have the excuse, right? Yeah. So it's like you got an 11, 11 week old, or I've got an 11 week old baby girl. and. That thing has like completely changed my life. All right, I've got a couple more questions sure. before we wrap this up because you know we messed around at the beginning. So, I'm not sure. <laughs> well, at least we got it. Yeah, yeah, we got it right. Um, when did you realize, like, so as a CTO, when you're in that developer grow, growing, there, 
becomes this this skill you have to cultivate where or develop where you you learn that you're overwhelmed and this is the moment when you need to bring someone on you need to clone yourself right i need a clone to execute this process for me and then i will make sure that process is operating and then you freeze up a chunk of your time for you to make yourself busier doing other things to grow the product and business and then you get overwhelmed again and you hire someone uh, when was the first time that you knew that you felt you're like, I'm overwhelmed. I need another like assistant developer to come in here and write some stuff for me. I would say it was uh, after, after we went into production, after we started rece receiving, you know, customers, new customers, non beta customers, like actual paid customers. I think, I think once we reached even 50, customers uh as you imagine the more uh, the more customers you have the more bugs are discovered the more features are requested uh absolutely you know, so 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 you are kind of bombarded at that point when you have a lot of people using the product i mean if you've only got three people using the product they might not find everything and, and it may not be that big of a deal but yeah certainly the more customers we had the more pressure i felt and uh yeah that's when we did it Excellent. So you felt the pressure, you identified it, you pulled someone on board, you delegated some tasks to them. Ooh, how did you, uh, when you hired that person, what were you hiring? Were you hiring junior, mid, senior? What were you looking for? You know, our, our history is so atypical. And I'll tell you, I'll answer your question, but it's, it might not be helpful. So, um, the the person, the, the developer right now, who's sort of my right-hand man, someone I trust with, with writing, all the code, you know, if I left tomorrow, uh, his name's Sean. And believe it or not, he started as a junior web developer. He's currently now at the VP status. Um, after I want to say he's coming up on his third uh, anniversary. So it took him like three years. But the thing about hiring is it's so fucking hard. It really is. You know, you've got to you've got to sift through a bunch of shitty developers. Am I allowed to say that? Yeah, you're allowed to say. And it. okay, good. And it's it's a it's really draining. You know, at the end of the day, it's very discouraging when you're seeing developer after developer, and they all start out with, you know, I'm the best, I'm awesome, I'm perfect for this job, fucking perfect, and they never are. So. Um, so, so we were hiring, uh, basically we were hiring a senior position and a junior position. We hired Sean in the junior position and I, I knew right away that this guy was too smart to be a junior for, for very long. Um, and he was only a junior developer because he had just started rails development. You know, he already knew everything about the web. He had already known, um, you know, how to build websites and, and, and he knew different languages, but we wanted rails and he was brand new to Rails, So he had just done one of those three month, um, accelerator or whatever those things are. And it's worked out great. So I, I think the lesson from that is even if you hire at, at the lower level, if you find bright people, like really incredible people, you know, hang on to them, never let them go. Oh, a hundred percent agree. The, those people that have that spark, uh, it's hard to verbalize, but when you see it, you know it Yeah, and you grab on and you, you invest in your people, you know, and then you, you grow your, your company on a solid foundation. You know, if you get, I love one of my favorite things, I feel like a broken record because I've been saying it so much since doing this book and all this content is, uh, you get a B team, you get B results. 
Yeah, oh, like, absolutely. It's just so true. If, if I was speaking at a conference in Brazil yesterday over video conference, and I, one of the things I talked about was, uh, you know, hire the expert, right? That's like, if I could go back in time and talk to myself previously, I'd say, look, hire experts off the bat. And that doesn't necessarily, like when you, what you're talking about with Sean, right? Um, he can be an expert and just have a, a, a low amount of experience in that one category. Right, right. But if he acts like an expert, if he has the qualities and the traits and the habits of an expert, right? Then that makes all the difference in the world. And then I, I published uh, an article last night after, after doing that talk and thinking about it that talked about validating experts, right? Because that's something that we don't talk about a lot. If you go, you can read management. I I read a lot of books. Like I'm a big mm -hmm. fan recently of reading and tons of books. And never once have just I just recently, to, never before. Yeah, about five years. You just learned to read. Okay. Uh, no joke. I have read one, before before 2010. Okay, before 2010. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm like, what, 21 then? Before Something 2010. Like I had read one book of Goosebumps. <laughs> okay. And hold great on a series. I don't mean to. Yeah, that's a yeah. fantastic series. I think it was a 62 page book or something like that. And then the, uh, the book Ender's Game. Oh, uh, one of my favorites. Yeah. The, the only oh, wait, I might have loaned that to you, actually. You did not. Okay. We talked okay. about it because I saw it on your bookshelf and it was like, that's when I found out that there was a, it was a series. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. So, um, all right. So man, you gave lots of valuable, uh, experience. And, and that's the thing that I don't think was being understood when I was reaching out to people is that your experience, the truth of what you went through is the value. Yeah. People say, I don't have value. I just have this story about this. That's the value. Uh, I really want to be a billionaire. That's like a huge thing. And it's not about money. There's nothing I want to go buy. Right. Mm -hmm. I just believe that this is like a game. This life is like a game and there's points and the points are money. And I want to <laughs> get my points as high as possible in the game. Right. Sure. I know a lot of people would disagree with that, but yeah, hundred percent. And that's perfectly fine. So, yeah, yeah. so what I decided to do was I took like a monkey see monkey do approach. Like if I want to be a homeless crackhead, I can go inject drugs into my veins. Right. 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 So, so, right. I, so I go to myself, I say, Hey, if you want to be a billionaire, if you want to simply, you know, create as much impact as you can in life, you have to go look at the monkeys that are doing that and see what they're doing and then do that. So I, I went and rather than reading like a business book of like, you know, just the businessy, that would be, I guess, the standard route. I took the right. route of reading the life stories of the billionaires so I could understand who they are as humans. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Because you can give me a list of management skills and that does nothing for me if I can't, you know, derive who you are as a person and how you think. Sure. Yeah. So I I read you know, those books, Elon Musk, Richard Branson, Jeff Bezos. And one of the things that I noticed between all of them is that they had a lot of struggle, right? No, of course. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, have you identified like, uh, like what have been the tough parts of the struggle in like your business and your growth that have made you want to say, look, 
there's some days when you want to quit. I don't care who you are and what you do. There's some days where you just want to be like, fuck it. Like I'm done. And like, what are like, has that happened to you? And don't you lie. (laughs) (laughs) And then, and then what did you do? How, How did you deal with that? How'd you process that? Yeah, I wish I wish I could tell you how I dealt with it because I still haven't. Um, <laughs> uh, number one thing for me is um, is working remote. Um, when I started out, it seemed like such a glamorous thing. You're gonna let me work from home? You mean I don't have to, you know, dress up? I don't even have to comb my hair? Um, you know, seven years later, it's not it's not as fun. You know, I find myself at the library or at uh, Starbucks, you know, because it's, it's being around other people. You know, there's, there's something about being around other people, even if you're not talking to them. You know, it's the, it's the sense of claustrophobia or the sense of, I just can't be in one place. It also ruins your house, by the way. You know, you can't, you can't come home from work and enjoy your house because you're coming home from your house. So um, Anyone who who feels that they're they're working from home and they don't like it, find a co-working space, you know, or or at the very least, go to your public library. Your taxes are already paying for it. So um, yeah, so so working remotely is is difficult for me. Um, I, I just and and I should explain our our uh, our actual brick and mortar office is in Tucson. You know, it's in Arizona, uh, and I'm in Florida. And I'm just not a big fan of, of deserts, you know, so that's why I haven't moved out there. So, uh, yeah, other than remote working, I would say, oh, geez, um, I haven't had any other struggles. All right. So the, the struggle <laughs> I'm is... Just, I'm just kidding. <laughs> so for you, when it comes to remote working, the struggle is real when it comes to the human factors. Yeah, so I'm not married, you know, I don't I, I don't have any kids running around. So it's it's basically uh, myself here and my dog occasionally goes from my bedroom to the couch and back and forth. And that's that's the real uh, entertainment that I have here. I love Alice. Yeah, she's a great dog. Yeah, I wish I had a little uh, like dun dun like sound effect for like <laughs> yeah. yeah, or her barking, yeah. But I, sh- I should say um, uh, another struggle is um, disagreeing with your co-founder. You know, oh, that's um, a big one. It hasn't happened in a, in a long time, fortunately. But I would I would say you know the first three years when when you're getting to know this person, when you're getting to uh, work with this person on a, on a full time basis, you know you will have disagreements, and it's kind of one of those choose your battle things. You know, it's almost like being in a relationship. Is this really worth? arguing over and for the you know mostly it wasn't um but all that kind of just disappears you know you become friends with the person hopefully you become friends you know you you want to spend time with them you want to talk to them and fortunately that's that's where we're at today no that's excellent yeah it's definitely a relationship and it fall like it follows all the same rules of a relationship yeah just without the sex no sex yeah there's no upside right (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Especially if your co-founder is an attorney, <laughs> right? right <laughs> definitely, yeah. definitely don't want to bring that in. Uh, but, but real quick, so it's December right now. Yeah. Yesterday, I was sitting down thinking about how I made my money this year. Okay, mm-hmm. very odd. It's very atypical. At least to me, it's atypical for me. Other people might be listening, and say, "Oh, that's 
that's how I make money. I do that all the time. People call me up out of nowhere. Sometimes the 911 type situation where their CTO has hijacked the company or, (laughs) (laughs) right? Or a situation where their shareholders found out that the system they were building didn't exist and the invoices were faked and like huge amounts of money were lost. Uh, Situations where IP was completely lost, like they had catastrophic system failures and they were old school with internal servers and didn't have redundant backups in the cloud and like all this stuff. So those are actual things I accepted money for this year to deal with. Right. Wow. So, and I, for the emergency stuff, it's great because those cost the most. Right. So I wanted to put together value. Like, so my goal with this podcast and this book is to share everything I know for free. I don't want anyone to have to pay me for like learning this knowledge. Right. Sure. I just want to deploy it at scale and then they'll say, all right, Joel smart. Let's talk to Joel if we need him to help us with any of this stuff. So Mm -hmm. the, the thing I came up with to provide value to CTOs was this thing I call uh, came up with it yesterday, so it's new, it's fresh. So feel free to laugh at it. I call it the year-end CTO audit checklist. Oh, okay. And it, it's very long. It is very long. So our PR department will. <laughs> we need Jenny. I like uh, this girl is amazing. Our podcast producer is Jenny. She's from Australia. She's moving to New York City December fifth. Oh no! Because she's got a ton of clients. Sounds like yeah. Sounds like she's probably busy today. She's super busy. So she is fantastic putting all this together and everyone listening that, or everyone that has been on the podcast knows because they interact with her. Uh, but she is fantastic producer at modernCTO.io if you want to be on the show. So I, I put together this, uh, this CTO checklist for auditing so that you don't need me so that you can like do these basic things. And so okay. I'm going to run them by you. Okay. All right. And then you tell me, um, make fun of them or do whatever you yeah. want. Give me your honest opinion of them and I'll, I'll definitely explain why. So the first thing I have on here is things that CTO should be doing is making sure that all the reap, if they're, if they're a product company, technology, I mean, everyone's a product, everyone has technology as a product in their company. You can't be a tech company without it. Right. Right. I think it's fair to say that 80 to hundred percent of all the technology related or all the companies have a Git repo or some equivalent of it. Right. I I mean, I would hope. Okay. So on the audit checklist, this came from a specific issue that we had earlier this year is a developer had cloned a repo, but he cloned it in his personal developer account and then included it in the project. So it was pulling the the, uh, cloned repo from Mm -hmm. his account and his account went off offline. He deleted that repo after he had left the Mm -hmm. company and then that company had trouble building the repo when they were building Is this a location. true story? It's a true story. Okay. Yeah. So they called me and I found a copy of the repo in there uh, on their server, right? Mm. Because when you build it, it sucks it in, right? Mm-hmm. And so then I took that repo out and I put it back into their organization account and then linked to the new one, right? Because if they ever were to switch servers, that repo wouldn't be there to freshly pull in. Sure. Okay. So... One of the things I have on the checklist is make sure that all the repos that you're dependent upon, right, that your developers have made modifications to or anything like that, uh, that you have them outside of the personal developer's account and put them inside the organization's account. Right. So the organization has control over copies of those repos that have been modified that they need to build their applications. Sure. Am I saying yes or no? I'm just, I'm just running it by you. 
Okay, right. Do you have that situation? Do you have, uh, if you if you brought a developer in, you tell me what you do. You bring in a developer in on a contract on a special basis, right? And they need a modification to a repo like device, just hypothetical. Sure. So sure. They, they clone device, they make the modifications, right? It doesn't get back included in the master project because the pull request doesn't get accepted, right? So now you have this dependency of this repo and a contractor's personal account and you're dependent upon that. Would you allow that to happen or would you take that repo and put it into your organization's account so you can control it? Well, it, I mean, if it if it's IP, you know, it it needs to be protected at all costs, obviously. Um, the thing is, is there there's a necessary amount of risk when you bring on a new a new developer because they will be cloning the repo to their own machine, you know, and we don't know what they're doing with that machine. They could be working at Starbucks and they could leave it there. Uh, they could be doing anything with it, you know, but um, we do have an organization and, and we would never allow, you know, these are private repos. We, we certainly don't want them to be public. So it would, um, it would stay in the organization. Perfect. So the, you would never allow a private or a modified public repo to sit on the developer's personal account. You would always bring it into the organization's account and make it private. Yeah, absolutely. Perfect. All right. So just the checklist of going through and making sure that these outside parties that have come in and done work, that you're not dependent on that. Um, so that is on the checklist. Another thing that's on the checklist is to make sure you have all of your intellectual property agreements organized in folders by people's names and that they're definitely backed up in a place where you're the only person that has share access to it. What do you think of that? Yeah, I mean, I agree with it. Um, it's not something that I do personally, um, but I, I I agree with it. Um, and and by me not doing personally doesn't mean the company isn't doing it. It's just not me that I'm not doing it. So where is Sean's IP agreement? I would imagine there's a printed copy in our CEO's desk, you know, in his file cabinet. So so the CEO oh, because he's a lawyer, he took the lead on the paperwork. That may have been, yeah, that may have been the gotcha. case. Gotcha. Yeah. So, so for me, my partners aren't lawyers, right? <laughs> but they're more business and uh, like venture type people. So they make it my responsibility to organize all the IP paperwork. I see. Anyone yeah. I have come and go. Because I'll have, you know, right now I've got five different corporate clients with three to four developers on each project and I cite, you know, maybe two developers come and go every month based on the workload, right? Mm -hmm. um, or the specialty that we need, like if we're doing some AR stuff, we'll have an AR specialist come in, right? So I have to maintain these sets of documents and make sure that everything is signed, everything's organized and everything's in its spot because that those IP agreements, man, they'll kill you. Yeah, but that almost sounds like administrative work. Uh, that's, a, that's a part of the CTO. Oh, well, I hate it. And again, the CTO is, <laughs> it's not, I don't wake up in the morning and stretch <laughs> and be like, <gasps> paperwork, paperwork. No. And it doesn't even take me, you know, long at all. I just sure. make sure that I go through and, and I have it right. Well, I think the important thing is to, you know, retain that information, retain those agreements. Um, how you do it may be irrelevant. Right. Well, I had one. As long as it's safe. So these are based on true stories, right? Yeah. So I had one guy who had it, all of his IP agreements in a Dropbox, like a technology Dropbox for his company. Mm -hmm. 
but his number two and his number three were on the share. Oh, okay. So that's no good. That is no good. And things went south. So they were able to uh, delete them. And if you delete the only copy, luckily Dropbox had this feature and we recovered it, but uh, it potentially was a large mess. So the third. Yeah, no, that sounds awful because. You know, uh, aside from the fact that they were trying to take those contracts and, and delete them, it sounds like there was some uh, some sort of dispute, you know, and that's never good. That's never good. We like high fives and, you know, shipping products. We don't like disputes. Uh, yeah, yeah. Number three on the list is one of my personal favorites and something uh-huh. I had to do is making sure that all your alerts and alarms on all your devices for... Uh, like whether it's Amazon or whatever, that or for uptime, that they're all working properly and they're set up. Sure. Because what, like I'll give you an example. We had we added a feature to uh, one of our services at, at a company where we needed to actually host on its own EC2 instance this uh, server, and then we would you know connect to it remotely. And someone forgot to follow our checklist and put an uptime alert on it. And it went down. Oh. So I realized that these little things come and go. People have needs to boot up servers and pull them down, whether they're testing something. See, that? I think that's where they really get it is when developers, when they're trying something new, they, they usually will test a couple of open technologies, decide which ones they want to go with, right? And yeah. I think one of the things that gets lost is the, the normal workflow of like, all right, I tested it, I like it, and now I'm going to integrate it in my production your mind isn't on those things of like setting up the alerts and the alarms all the time, unless if it's like right in front of you. Well, it also depends on your architecture. Um, for us, we're using Heroku still. Yeah. And a lot of that's just built in to Heroku. We also use New Relic. I, I think Relic. between the two of them, not a whole lot gets past us. Right. Perfect. So that's a, that's a great, you know, response to making sure yeah. your alerts, just going in there and making sure every year, I just like to, to go look. Sure. Yeah. Do an audit. Yeah. Yeah. Because, yeah. you know, they could update their systems and release some feature and have a new checkbox for you. Right. There could be some advancement that you need to know about. Um, or they could have had an error in their data doing some sort of internal data migration where you're the 1% of accounts that the feature got flipped off for. Like, yeah, for sure. Not to scare people, but their stuff. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, once a year, number four, I back up my most prized, important. IP, the stuff that matters the most to me, mm-hmm. I back it up offline. I do. I know. That sounds like a really good idea. It's. I know it's old. I've had people be like, ah, I'm on a triple redundant rate, da, 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 da. And I'm like, okay, bro, look, it's a computer. Computers are vulnerable to you know, anything. So I, the things that are most important to me for my intellectual property, the things that, think about it, all that code at your company, Derek, seven sure. years let's say, sure. you know, three to $500,000 a year, you got a multi-million dollar code base. Sure. Okay. So, you know, what's the harm in just taking that, that text and putting it on a external drive? Yeah. Yeah. No, we, we, um, we, we do offsite database backups and, and by nature of that, we, we do have, uh, you know, a copy of the, the source code, you know, where, where that, where that backup, uh, uh, code you know exists and, and operates right so we do so we do to answer your question yeah, yeah. we do have that and the purpose of but, this but <laughs> yeah is not for me to like preach on how to do it it's, oh, it's yeah, just yeah. here's the checklist item whatever you're comfortable with. i'm just bringing it to your attention hi i'm joel we're humans we forget right i'm just saying 
do do a checklist item that your IP is backed up however you feel comfortable. Right, right. You know, I I, I usually just grab the backup of my backups. So mm-hmm. you have like a list of previous backups. I usually just grab a full dump of a backup of everything that's important. Well, so are we talking about database or code? Everything. Okay, right. Yeah. I mean, naturally, we do, we do have database. Uh, Heroku has it built in, and uh, and then we take those and we we store them uh, offsite as redundancy. Right. Perfect. Uh, yeah, because then you don't have to worry about getting all the indiv- one of the things that takes really long to transfer is like when you have all the individual files, right? And so right. it's way easier just to transfer a large backup, at least in my opinion. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, they compress it down and it's pretty quick. Yeah. And I, and I said, one of the ideas that came to me, it was like, if I've had people give me like pushback on this, Derek. That's why I'm bringing this up. Mm-hmm. And they were saying, oh, you don't need to protect it like that much. And I said, have you seen how McDonald's like protects their fry recipe? It's like in a how do they do? That? It's in a bank vault where like two people, like well, the two of like the owners have. It's like the equivalent of launching nuclear missiles. Hmm. How how it's stored for disgusting fast food. Uh, yeah, fried right to your face. Yeah, are so, we allowed to say that? Is that a McDonald's is, that is not a sponsor? Um, right. Okay. Fact, but I mean, are, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. In fact, we are we are against diabetes and. <laughs> <laughs> So but we are sponsored by Blue Moon. Uh, Blue Moon. Uh, official, We're not, but we would like to be. Official sponsor of Derek's uh, beverage. Friday afternoons. Friday afternoons. Yeah. There we go. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then the lo- another thing I have, here we go. Number five, uh, review all your authentications across all your services and make, oh, yeah, yeah. and make sure that none of your previous contractors or developers or anyone that has had access that has come and gone have lingering access. I've seen this happen. Yeah. Yeah. Well, see, I would say I would say that you know, sort of the modern way that we do things with AWS and with Heroku, they make it super easy to cut someone off at, at a moment's notice. A hundred percent. Yeah. So as long as you're using, you know, the IAM, um, and and you've got d- different users and they have their own permissions, you can act like they never existed. Exactly. But I'm talking things like, let's say you do a Facebook integration. Uh-huh. So you can log in with Facebook and oh, right, inside, yeah. buried inside that, inside three sub menus is a user's list. Yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. That's what I'm talking about. Right. You dev- Yeah. Delete those users. Yeah. It's- I have people everywhere. I got them in my Google. I am my Google auths, right? Mm-hmm. Multiple developers, people come and go from projects. And it's not even that there's any sort of negativity or anything from them. I, you just no. not letting, it's like you lock your front door. Right. Right. You well, you want to be able to sleep well at night. Exactly. So that's why I have just I just go through my services and the way I do it is by going to my billing often. Go to my oh, billing right, yeah. and I see what I spent money on and I'll see, oh, look at that feature that we, you know, spent a block, you know, a hundred fifty hour block on. That was a Facebook feature. I gotta go check the Facebook stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, then the last thing is that I like to do, and it's not as as uh, technical as the other ones. But it's to review all the projects that have become stale. So like, mm. I don't know about you, but throughout the year, I start things and then like some business emergency will happen or some very distracting event will occur and a project won't complete. It'll, it'll just be distracted by the incoming part of life and it'll sit out there. And I like to go through and look at anything that has become stale that didn't necessarily finish off any of my old feature branches, right? Things that just didn't mm-hmm. quite. And I just like to do like a little cleanup. 
Yeah, no, I, I think it's it's a great idea. I, I think the difference in what you do and what I do is, you know, we only have one product. You're you're working on several different products. So when we create a feature, we try not to be distracted. That feature is going from start to finish, no matter what happens. But there are definitely uh, we use Pivotal Tracker for for our stories and, and keeping track of development. There are absolutely stories in there that are stale as stale can be. And there's just so much going on. It's, it's hard to keep track of that stuff. So I, I think it's brilliant, yeah, to, to take a moment and sort of um, analyze and, and see what you've got laying around and, and if need be, delete it. Absolutely. Yeah, so that's it. That is, wow. I feel good. I feel really, really good. Now, are you going to have, uh, like, is there a site for this? ModernCTO.io. Thank you so much for listening to the Modern CTO Podcast. Share this. Get the word out. Thank you guys so much. I couldn't do it without you. I appreciate it. You guys are the absolute best.